0: Ezekiel chapter 40 is the Millennial Temple. We are going to, God willing, get through five chapters tonight, because we're not going to read three of them. There's some things in there that I want to highlight, but mostly it is the blueprint make this this big and that that big and all that kind of thing and that's really important because God specifies how he wants his house built and he gets to specify that so it's very important but we are not in the process of building it so reading through the specifications doesn't give you a lot of insight what I've got on the screen is I have got a plan view of Ezekiel's Millennial Temple, and for those people out in streaming land and those people on podcast land, you can look this up on the internet. If you are in the process of constructing it, those details are really important, but if you're not in the process of constructing it, they're very dry and you don't get a lot of information about it. So I am going to skip big chunks of Ezekiel 40 through 45, and if you want the measurements, they're up there on the board, and you can look them up on the internet. They're all over the internet, not hard to get. So let's start reading Ezekiel 40. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, in the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year, after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. So this is 14 years after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. And we get a vision of Ezekiel being taken to what will turn out to be the Millennial Temple. And you remember earlier in the prophecy, he was taken to Jerusalem also in a vision. And what he saw as he was taken in the vision to Jerusalem was all of the abominations that were happening in the temple before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. You had people facing the east and facing the sunrise and just all sorts of stuff going on. And God will refer to that later on. In fact, we'll probably read that part because I'm going to go through and I'm going to cherry pick what I want to read. So anyway, the vision that he has corresponds to the vision he had before Solomon's temple was destroyed. In this case, he's got a man as a guide, and the man has got a measuring reed and a linen cord. I'm sure most of you know that linen does not stretch. So the cord is essentially a tape measure, and the fact that linen doesn't stretch is just one of the little details that's important. Similarly, a reed, when it's dried out, is very light and very stiff. In fact, they made arrows out of reeds because they are so light and so stiff. So the idea of having a staff 10 cubits long, going and measuring stuff is fairly important. So verse 2, "...in visions of God he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain." on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing on the gateway. And the man said to me, son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. So what he's going to be given is a tour of the place and he will get dimensions as he goes through every part of the tour and he's to write those down and take them to the exiles in Babylon. And later on when we get down to God coming into the temple, one of the things that will be said is God will say they will look upon all these measurements and they will be ashamed. And we'll talk about that when we get there. So the purpose of the detailed measurements, I believe, is twofold. Fold number one is at some point it's going to be used by somebody to build the thing. And at that point, the size and and the dimensions and everything are going to become really important because somebody's got to cut stone and cut timber and stuff to match. But they're also used to shame the exiles who are in exile because of their faithlessness. Now, we are all the way down to 40 verse 6, and this is where I am going to start skipping. God considers the dimensions important, so do I, but they, as far as I can tell, have no symbolic meanings. They may have, but I don't know what they are. We're not building it, so don't see any point in reading it all. So now what I want to do is scroll down to verse 44. Here are the chambers for the priests. So on the outside of the inner gateway there were two chambers in the inner court on the side of the north gate facing south the other on the side of the south gate facing north. And he said to me this chamber that faces south is for the priests who have charge of the temple and the chamber that faces north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok who alone among the sons of Levi may come near to the Lord to minister to him. And he measured the court, a hundred cubits long and a hundred cubits broad, a square, and the altar was in front of the temple. Zadok was a priest. Eli was the high priest. Eli has two sons, Hophni and Phineas, who are corrupt. They die at the Battle of Apec. God gives Samuel a vision in which he passes the message to Eli that you will never have an old man in your family again. Eli then dies when he discovers that his two sons have been killed. The ark gets taken by the Philistines, and Zadok stays consistently loyal to David. So you have stuff with Absalom You have stuff with Adonijah, both of whom are trying to get power for themselves. Absalom is killed. Adonijah eventually gets killed by Solomon. But through all of that, Zadok remains loyal to David. So that's the pedigree and the reason why his line is the line that is going to minister in the Millennial Temple. I'm going to back up now. I'm going to go back to 38. So I'm in 4038. There was a chamber with a door in the vestibule of the gate where burnt offering was to be washed, and in the vestibule of the gate were two tables on either side on which the burnt offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering were to be slaughtered. What that tells me is this is pre-New Covenant because there are still sin offerings. And this is joneology. You don't have to buy this if you don't like it. But what that tells me is the New Covenant is not in effect during the millennial reign. And you all remember, of course, what the New Covenant is. Essentially, the New Covenant, taking Ezekiel's version, is God will remove the heart of stone, replace it with a heart of flesh, and then write his Torah upon the heart. So the idea there is, in the New Covenant era, we shouldn't need... Sacrifices for sin, you still could have burnt offerings because burnt offerings are wholly consumed and they don't have anything to do with sin. Thank offerings, burnt offerings, peace offerings, all of those could conceivably continue right on through the new heaven and the new earth because they have nothing to do with sin. They are simply expressions of worship to God. Sin offerings, on the other hand, are different. They are, as the name implies, for sin. You all know this, of course. There are no offerings in the temple or the tabernacle having to do with willful sin. They're all for accidental sin, if you will. You realize that, oh, that wasn't my sheep that I just ate. And so, You have to make restitution for whoever owned the sheep, but then you have to also bring a sin offering. Same thing if you gossip and murmur, and if you believe the rabbis and good as any, you come down with leprosy. So there's a procedure then to get cleared of leprosy that involves a sin offering. As I read this, those sin offerings are still going to be operational in this temple. That's what it says. That's straightforward. The genealogy part is, it indicates to me that this is also not New Covenant territory, because as I understand the New Covenant, we're not going to do that. I could be completely wrong. Paraphrase the comment. Tom's idea is that when Yeshua returns and regathers all of Israel, he will write his Torah upon their heart. And hence, the new covenant will be in effect at that point. You will have then nations still there. And the nations, as we know, will get tempted by Satan at the end of a thousand years and will rebel and will come against Jerusalem and be destroyed. So Tom's idea is the new covenant is in effect, at least for Israel and perhaps for people who are born again Christians before the Lord returns and the nations are the ones that are rebelling and, and that is a perfectly respectable opinion, my opinion which is my opinion is that in the new heaven and the new earth everybody there has made it past the lake of fire but you still have Israel and you still have the nations. Israel maintains its identity, has the function that God originally intended for them, which is a nation of priests, and you have the rest of the nations populating the new heaven and the new earth. It is my opinion, not a strong belief, but an opinion, that that's when the new covenant is going to be in effect. God knows I don't. He's not going to consult me. So... Do with that whatever you like. It is not something that I would consider worth arguing about. So now, let's scooch down to chapter 43, because all the rest of this is construction details. And they're really important, and they will be really important when somebody has to start cutting stone, but we're not at that point, so... We can trust that they'll still be there when we have to start cutting stone, and at that point we can study it. Now we're all the way down to chapter 43. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, just like the vision that I had seen by the Kabar Canal, and I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. You remember, he was there when the glory left. Both times, by the way, in a vision. The leaving part was contemporary with him. In other words, it's a historical event that he witnessed as a vision, but it also happened during his lifetime. This is an event that is yet future to him and to us. Verse 6. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring, by the dead bodies, and by their kings at their high places, by setting their threshold by my threshold, and their doorpost beside my doorpost, with only a wall between me and them, They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed. So now I have consumed them in my anger. And again, you remember when he went the first time in a vision and saw the glory depart. He looked inside of chambers, inside the temple, and he saw elders and so forth doing abominable things. So when God says they're doing this stuff with nothing but a wall, To separate them from me, they have defiled my house. So he's referring back to that earlier vision where we saw that that was happening. Verse 9. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. By the way, this dead bodies of their kings thing, you remember when we had the oracle against Tyre, where the king of Tyre goes down to the dead, having died himself, and the dead people talk to him and say, we're down here and you've now come to join us. And part of the idea there was, you don't even have your own, you're just sort of thrown down here. We at least have a crypt, a tomb, a mausoleum, someplace where we were buried. You don't. So the idea here of the dead kings, if you will, some of them have been buried in a proper way, but some of them have not. And so what I'm suggesting is going on, that getting the dead bodies of the kings out of the way is the ones that were slaughtered and never buried. In fact, one of the things that happens over and over again in the prophets, especially Ezekiel, is I'm going to bring in somebody to slaughter you all, and you're not going to be buried. The birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field are going to eat your carcasses. They're just going to be there. So the idea that nobody is going to take care of your dead body is part of the curse so I'm all the way down to verse 10. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits, its entrances, that is, its whole design, and make known to them as well all its statutes, and its whole design, and all its laws, and write it down in their sight, so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. So the idea here that when they see the plan for the millennial temple, they are going to be ashamed. I am not quite sure what that means, but I'll take a shot at it. And if somebody else wants to take a shot, Welcome. You remember that Ezekiel is prophesying to the exiles who are in Babylon. This prophecy comes to him years after Nebuchadnezzar has finished the destruction of Israel and Jerusalem has been destroyed. One of the things that happens early on in the book is that the elders of the exile come to him to inquire of the Lord. And God says, no way, Jose. you guys are here because of your abominations and there's no way you're going to come and inquire of me. So the idea that they cannot inquire of the Lord themselves, the idea that the temple has been destroyed. And you remember from Jeremiah that the people in Jerusalem think that they're safe because they have the temple in the middle of the city and jeremiah specifically says you guys are saying oh look the temple of the lord the temple of the lord god is not going to let his temple be destroyed we're going to be safe and jeremiah says that is a lying prophecy because you have turned the temple into a den of robbers you don't come to the temple to pray and repent You come to the temple like a robber who has escaped to a hideout and you're expecting my temple to be your hideout to protect you from the consequences of your sin. It ain't going to happen. So the thought that I have about the people being ashamed when they see the plan for the new temple is they realize what they've lost, they realize why they've lost it, they see that something far more glorious is going to be built, and they feel shame at having been the generation that lost it. So then we got the table of worship and so forth for consecrating the altar. Verse 13 through verse 17 gives the dimensions of the altar. So down to verse 18. And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances for the altar. On the day when it is erected for offering burnt offerings upon it and for throwing blood against it, you shall give to the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord God, a bull from the herd for a sin offering. And you shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar and on the four corners of the ledge and upon the rim all around. Thus you shall purify the altar and make atonement for it. You shall also take the bowl of the sin offering, and it shall be burned in the appointed place belonging to the temple outside the sacred area. And on the second day you shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering, and the altar shall be purified, as it was purified with the bull. Verse 23. When you have finished purifying it, you shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. You shall present them before the Lord, And the priests shall sprinkle salt on them and offer them up as burnt offering to the Lord. For seven days you shall provide daily a male goat for a sin offering, also a bull from the herd and a ram of the flock without blemish shall be provided. Seven days shall they make atonement for the altar and cleanse it and so consecrate it. And when they have completed these days, then from the eighth day onward, the priest shall offer on the altar your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord God. Essentially the same procedure as for Moses' tabernacle. The altar has to be purified, and then you can start making offerings on it. Chapter 44. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east and was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall remain shut. It shall not be open, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gate, and shall go out by the same way. So if you look at one of the gates up there, the one on the east, what you see is that the gate is a long chamber, And it's got side chambers where you would have sentries or guards or whatever. That eastern gate is not to be used because God himself has used it. And it is also the place where the prince, who I believe is David. Remember, we went through that. David will be raised from the dead and he will be king. So the idea that he would come there to sit and eat bread before the Lord, that is a place only for him. There are various opinions on that. Some people believe it's Yeshua and so forth. I don't. I think we're talking about David there. He's the local prince, and he gets to sit and do lunch with God periodically. And he goes in from the temple side, not from the outside. So he doesn't come from outside the temple area through the gate. He comes from inside to the gate and then he sits in the gate. And of course that's Tanakh speak for that's where you conduct business. The elders sit in the gate when they do their business. So the king is sitting in the gate with the presence of God And that's where the two of them are conducting whatever business they have to conduct that's different by the way than the day of atonement when the high priest goes into the holy of holies and he only goes in once a year and so forth i don't have any idea how often david gets to go talk to god but the metaphor here seems to be we're conducting business you are my local king I'm God, we got business to do, this is where we're going to do it. Verse 4. Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord, and I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears, all that I shall tell you concerning all the statutes of the temple of the Lord and all its laws. And mark well the entrance to the temple and all the exits from the sanctuary, and say to the rebellious house, to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, enough of all your abominations, and admitted in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and flesh, to be in my sanctuary, profaning my temple. And when you offer to me my food, the fat, and the blood, you have broken my covenant. In addition to all your abominations, You have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep charge for you in my sanctuary. You all remember the book of Acts, when Paul comes back to Jerusalem, and he's told by James, the Lord's brother, all right, everybody's got rumors about you, tell you what you're going to do. We got some guys that are going to clear a Nazarite vow. You go with them, And you pay the vow, in other words, do the sacrifice with him, and everybody will then know that you walk orderly. And so he's heading to the tabernacle to offer an offering to clear a Nazarite vow, and somebody starts a rumor that he brought Gentiles into the temple, and we have a riot. So what God is saying here is, You have admitted foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and flesh, and furthermore, you've got people who are not of the proper bloodline taking care of my stuff. Because in the law of Moses, I tell you who is authorized to take care of things, and you have gotten somebody else to do that. So you defiled my stuff. Verse 9. Thus says the Lord God, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart and hardened flesh of all the foreigners who are among the people of Israel shall enter my sanctuary but the Levites who went far from me going astray from me after their idols when Israel went astray shall bear their punishment they shall be ministers in my sanctuary having oversight at the gates of the temple and ministering in the temple they shall slaughter the burnt offerings and the sacrifice for the people and they shall stand before the people to minister them because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel. Therefore I have sworn concerning them, declares the Lord God, that they shall bear their punishment. They shall not come near to me to serve me as priests, nor come near any of my holy things and the things that are most holy, but they shall bear their shame and the abominations they have committed. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the temple, to do all its service, and all that is to be done in it. So what's happened is the Levites have not kept the people in line. And they, in fact, in some cases, have led them in going astray. They're still Levites, and they're still going to be working in the temple, but they no longer can touch or deal with anything holy. So they're around the periphery, and they're slaughtering and skinning stuff, and watching the doors and all that kind of thing, but they don't really have any worship function within the temple. In other words, they're the temple janitors, slaughter the offerings, but they don't get to offer them. They don't get to dash the blood against the side of anything. They're menial labor in the temple. The comment was, The Levites, when they did all of this stuff, have now died by the time this temple has been made. Hence, if they are guilty ones and they are serving in this new temple, they must be raised from the dead. And you may very well be correct. I'm not arguing with you. It could also be their descendants. Because just like only the descendants of Zodiac get to be in here, all the rest of the descendants of the priests don't get to do that. I don't know. I'm not arguing with you very strongly. It could be either way. We're going to stop there at uh, verse 14.